Psalm 139, a Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful, wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Thanks, Joel. Beautiful psalm there. Well, we are starting our series on gender, identity, and sexuality this week. I, it wasn't intentionally planned to be the weekend that the Pride Festival was going on, um, but that's where it ends up, so it's kind of timely. Uh, a few weeks ago, here at Murray, I saw a sign. There's a sign that one of the students had made, and across it were a number of statements of identity. And the first one was like, I, think, I, am, I am gay, I am straight, I am black, I am white, and all of those were crossed out. And the last line said, I am a human being. And I thought that that was a remarkable statement of truth. Um, yesterday, Gabe and his neighborhood friend sold water at the Pride Festival at Loring Park in, in Minneapolis. And so I picked him up after we got done with our redemp redemption group meeting. Um, and uh, so I picked up him and his friend and, and just started talking to him about what, uh, what he observed in the six or seven hours that he was at the Pride Festival. And he said that he, you know, saw a lot of things that he doesn't usually see. 
But um, one of the, the, the most troubling thing for Gabe was that there was a, a group of um, protesters there using the Bible to uh, slander and mock, and, um, and it was really disturbing to him. And so we talked about that a little bit, that that was not the way of Christ, and, um, and that it was a, a, an aspect of, of arrogance and, and their efforts to get a sense of righteousness on their own um, by the, the condemnation of others and setting themselves apart. And then he told me also that there was a, a group of people that were the, the hate blockers. And so they were uh, people that would hold a sheet up in front of the protesting group. They stood like five to ten feet away. And every time the, the, uh, the religious people, I'm not going to call them Christians because I don't think they're reflecting Christ. They're not little Christs, which is what Christian means. Uh, but every time that these religious people that were misusing the Bible would, would move and start speaking, they would move and stand in front of them. And eventually the, the religious folks um, complained to the police about their freedom of speech being interrupted. When I got home from, the, from picking Gabe up, the uh, most recent issue of The Atlantic had arrived. The cover story begins, it's, it's this, it's, your child says she's trans. She wants hormones and surgery. She's 13. And the article, which uh, I'm going to post it, see if I can find it online and post it, but it describes kind of the situation where we're at now in culture where, where teenagers that have gone through, or, or people that have gone through the hormone therapy and, and surgery to change their biological gender, um, now are at a point where, where many of those people, having made that decision in their, t in their teens, along with their parents and surrounding communities, uh, are finding themselves at a place where they are now identifying themselves with what their original biological sex was, and they get reversal. It is known that there is a lot of there are there are a lot of questions about identity and who we are and purpose and meaning in life that goes on in our teen years. It's always been the case, and so there's the article is really just kind of showing where we as a culture need to take a step back. The pendulum has swung in the complete other end of the spectrum, and we we need to start thinking about these things in more of a long-term effect. So these these issues are in our everyday lives. Um, at very early ages. And so we just felt that we really needed to step into this conversation and address it more than just um, as we hit passages and texts, you know, we'll speak to these kinds of things. But we thought the, the, the concerns and the, the weight of the issue in our culture was heavy enough to where it deserved a, a full series. And so um, we're going to start right here at the at the really the foundation of it all and it is it is the issue of of identity the whole series is going to cover a whole number of things as you i'm sure most of you have read the the post that we posted this week so we're gonna look at identity how is it formed uh what are the trends in science and culture and what are the teachings of scripture that are all kind of engaged right now what does it mean to be made in the image of god as male and female how to how does the how did the fall uh, the, the, the willful disobedience against God of man and woman in the garden. How did that affect all of these things? How do our feelings and thoughts and desires affect 
how we think about ourselves. And we're gonna, that's going to be a great sermon on, on the interplay that goes on inside ourselves about answering these questions of who we are. Uh, we're going to look at the realities of gender dysphoria and homosexual attraction and, and conclude it with a, a sermon on um, how these things need to be redeemed in the church. So we're really looking forward to it and hope you can, and can participate in as many of these as possible. And I want to make one more comment here before we jump into identity. We've had some questions about the age appropriateness for the series. And so especially in that kind of that, tra those, that transitional season of, of 10 to 13 years old, so Gabe's 13, we were encouraging him to participate in, in the series as, as much as possible if he's not scheduled for help with the child care. Um, but, you know, if, you're, if your kids are in that 10 to 11 zone and these things are kind of starting to emerge, um, you know, we would maybe encourage you to check out the sermon ahead of time and then as, as, as you feel appropriate for your kids, maybe have them listen to the sermon on, on, from the website throughout the week or just interact, them, interact with them about these ideas. These, these ideas are in our schools at very early ages. Uh, if you're in the public school system, even if you're not, uh, you cannot help but be observant and affected by these things in, in every aspect of media, uh, music, television, movies, inter whatever. So these things are, you know, w whether it's good or bad, this is where we're at as a culture. These are the things that we're facing. So we're going to jump right into identity. What is identity? And we're going to be heavily relying upon the concepts of these around, around two scholars and philosopher, philosophers. One of them is is uh, Charles Taylor. In terms of understanding these ideas and putting them into our own words, obviously we're going to be looking at Scripture and seeing what it says about it. Charles Taylor is one of the leading philosophers in our age in regard to this, this conception of identity. And he really has used his career to, uh, I'll say the word attack, he uses that word in his text, to attack what has emerged to be as a naturalism. A naturalism in our world that that he sees as it's, it's removed transcendent metaphysical ideas and we simply try to answer the life's larger questions from a scientific or a natural perspective and he says it's impossible to do. And they don't, and science and naturalism doesn't, they don't even try to answer some of these questions, they virtually say it's impossible. He says that, I, that our identity, our identity, our sense of self, is what allows us to define what is important to us and what is not. It allows us to define what is important and what is not important. And then obviously what we think of as important are the things that we're going to pursue. The things that are not important are the things we're going to avoid or, or move away from. And he says, to know who you are, to know who you are is to be oriented in a moral space a space in which questions arise about what is good or bad, what is worth doing and what is not, what has meaning and importance for you and what is trivial and secondary. So he, he connects our concept of identity to what we believe to be is good. He says you cannot escape those two ideas. And he sees that there are three fundamental questions that we, all asks, that we all ask as human beings when we try to answer these questions around our identity and what is the good. The first question is, what does it mean to respect others? What does it mean to do good to others? 
Second question is, what does it mean to live a full life? What is a full life? And the third question is, what makes us dignified? Or what commands the respect of those around us? So what does it mean to respect others? What does it mean to live a full life? And what does it mean to command the respect of others? Those are the three questions that we're really asking when we are trying to determine who we are. What is the meaning of our life? What is it that we are called to do? What is our purpose? So our answers to these questions change as we age and as we progress through life and its circumstances. And our culture is in a unique spot in that our culture no longer provides an overwhelming, distinct answer to those questions. We live, in a, we live in a pluralistic culture where there are many answers to those questions, many different tribes and, 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 and cultures that um, are telling us how to answer those things, which, which leads then to our second question. Where, where are our identities from? How do we shape our identities? And Taylor argues that, that our identities come from, from language. How we answer those questions is, is, is a... Is a is a, uh, a concern of language because we, we have to, to think with ideas and realities that we experience. And the ideas and realities that we experience have to, they are defined by terms that our culture uses. What does it mean to be generous? All right? What does it mean to be brave or courageous or loving and caring? All of these things are things that we experience. And our, and our culture has put language to them. But reality is not culturally determined. See, we all have these shared experiences, regardless of what culture or time you live on this planet. We all share these common experiences. Love, heartbreak, betrayal, generosity, these, these ideas that exist. And so we as cultures put terms to them. So our reality is not culture-defined. Our reality is defined by the experiences that we share, and our cultures put terms to these things. And so when we're born into this earth, we're not born into this, into this earth and into a family um, with all of our ideas about the world present within us. We have parents, we have communities, we have churches, we have schools, and it is these things that begin to shape our identity. Taylor says that... that one person is only a self among other selves. A self can never be described without reference to those who surround it. The full definition of someone's identity thus usually involves not only his or her stand on moral and spiritual matters, the questions of good, but also some reference to a defining community. So our identities are wrapped up in our concept of what is good. What, com how, what, what does it mean to respect others? What is the full life? What commands the respect of others? And then those things are answered by the communities of people that we grow up with and that we surround ourselves with. And so our communities change, right? We grow up in a family, and it's a primary source of our of our answers to these questions and our primary source of identity if, if we have a strong family that's doing those things. But then we start interacting with schools and neighbors and media, and as we age, we move out. And so all of these things, we're, we're, 
we're in a constant state of flux in regard to how we see ourselves, how we would answer the question of what is our identity. Jonathan Haidt also answers that in that way in his book, The Righteous Mind. He says people, there, there's, a, there's a spectrum of, of, of what we consider to be the, the, the moral good. And everybody generally affirms the, the six characteristics on that moral spectrum. And, and those that we would consider on the left identify with two or three moral characteristics on that spectrum. And those to the right are the other, another three or four characteristics on that moral spectrum. Everybody affirms that these are all good moral qualities. It's what we emphasize that, that kind of sets us in a direction of how we engage ourselves in society and in culture. And so it's these communities that shape our identities, which, is, which gets us to the point of where we're at in our reality, in our world. Taylor says that we, we live in a world that has rejected the old orders. We're no longer bound by transcendent ideas of God or, or country or of a greater good. And it's, in, in essence, a throwing off of uh, the old authorities, the old authorities of church, the old authorities of God, the old authorities of Bible, in some cases, the old authority of science. And we're in an era now where the, the authority is the individual. And authenticity, consistency, integrity to your inner self is what is considered the authority. And so some people say that we're, we're moving away from uh, a time where, where culture and groups defined reality and now individuals define reality. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that it's not like we're engaged in this conversation by ourselves when we see that ourselves are the new authority. We have people telling us, hey, you are your own authority. So one, at one time as a culture, we were in a group that said, hey, the authority is God, and, it expre and he expresses his authority through the scriptures and the church, and then our culture is kind of established around some of those things, which I'm not saying is the way it should be. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm just saying that's the way it's been up until about 150 years ago. And now what they're saying is, no, those are, those are the old authorities. We're throwing those away because they all failed us. Now we're in a new place. You are your own authority. Be, in, be authentic to yourself. Um, and so now we're just all a, a part of a large group of people that are saying that that's the authority. So it's still groups that we are a part of. It's still groups defining how we see the world, what we see as good. And Belief in God is no longer the good. Belief in yourself is now the good. You see? And that is what we are picking up from the communities around us. Freedom used to be good in that it protected you from enslaving lifestyles. And so having law and order and self-discipline was considered freedom because it would save you from destructive habits. Now freedom is the ability to choose and not have any sort of authority over you. You can do what you want and be who you want to be, and that's freedom. So it's just a different definition of what the good is, and that's where we're at as a culture. And so we have to begin asking ourselves the question, when we think about questions of identity, who, what, what tribe are we associating with? What tribe or group of people is defining what we would consider to be the ultimate good? 
Who are those that are answering those questions? What does it mean to respect others? What is the good life? What commands the respect of others? Is it our parents? Is it our friends? Is it the music that we listen to, the music, the movies and television that we watch? Is it our churches? Is it our government and politics? Is it the schools? And if you don't know, which one do you choose? Because you probably have, we probably have, we have heartstrings into all of these various things, right? All these various communities. We love something in each one of these as a culture. Maybe we've rejected a, a few of them, but we've adopted others. And we consider themselves informants or trodents, those who give us their tradition. So where do we find our tradition? And if we are growing up in a world that says, you have to come up with or discover who you are. But in reality, that is impossible for us to do because our identities are shaped by the people around us. But the people around us are telling us to find our own and discover our own selves. We have a culture of confusion because we cannot define our own identities. We are only selves within a larger group of selves, and those larger groups of people start telling us things from the day that we're born. And that is how our identities are shaped. So we have a culture of people, and it is critical that we understand this. We have a culture of people who have not grown up with what we, what Christians, what true Christians would be considered the adequate sources of identity and the answer of those questions about what is good. Are we then to expect our culture and individuals within it to have a grasp on what it means to know and serve and please God and love others and live the full life? It would be very arrogant for us to be in that place. We do not have a culture that defines identities. And so we have a confused culture. So what is the good? How can we know? We're going to be exploring this question, these questions throughout this entire series. I wanted to start with Psalm 139, Joel read earlier. Beautiful psalm on God and his identity-creating work in the formation of us as individuals. In the formation of us as individuals. Now the psalm starts out with, with David praising God for how God had made him and for God, how God thinks about him. And then you get to the end of the psalm and it's really weird. <laughs> God, you know that I hate your enemies. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? Because it's all super positive up to that point. But you have to see it. Why would David be reflecting on who he is in the eyes of God? Why would, be, why would David be wrestling with and, and reminding and affirming himself of, of God's good work in him? Well, David was in conflict for most of his life. David was in conflict with his father-in-law, who was also the king of Israel. But David was also anointed king of Israel. 
And for 13 years, Israel had two anointed kings. And the first anointed king, Saul, his father-in-law, was trying to kill him. And so you can imagine David in the nation of Israel, in the family of Jesse, but also in the family of Saul. And he's been anointed king, and he's a great soldier and warrior. And so you've got to think that David is probably wrestling with a lot of insecurities. He's got conflicts going on. Am I really the king? If I was the king and God anointed me king, maybe, maybe Samuel the prophet messed up. Because this guy Saul is still king, and I can't understand, after all of the good that I've done for him and the nation of Israel, why he's trying to kill me. Am I, am I supposed to be the king? I'm just, I'm just the small kid from the family of Jesse, a farming family. Am, am I, so it doesn't, we don't know that specifically, that that's what was going on, but it, it, he is in the midst of conflict. Maybe it's his conflict with the Philistines. Maybe it's his conflict with his son Absalom, who killed his other son, Amnon, for sleeping with his daughter. And so David was wrestling his entire life with family insecurity, with vocational insecurity, with conflicts with enemies with a, a sense of his integrity and undermining of his integrity. Am, am I worthy to be the king of Israel? After sleeping with one of his key soldiers' wives, getting her pregnant and then killing the soldier to hide the fact. Wrestling with his very integrity. Do, am, I, am I deserving of this place as king? So David is, has wrestled his entire life with who he was and where God had put him and who he was supposed to be and the purpose he was supposed to serve. And so when you set this prayer, this psalm, in the context of the conflict that David was in throughout his entire life, conflict that was a result of his own sin and conflict that was a result of the circumstances around him that he had no control over, you can see this psalm really come alive. And I want to point out a few things from it. First of all, the circumstances of our lives and those who speak into our lives, with or without our permission, necessarily creates disequilibrium and insecurity about how we think about ourselves. Aren't, aren't we always wrestling with, who am I? What am I here for? I'm such a screw-up or I'm too great? We're, we're, we're constantly asking ourselves these questions, are we not? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Do I deserve to be where I'm at? I deserve to be in a greater place. We are always asking these questions of ourselves. Who am I? What is my value? Am I living in a way that commands the respect of others? Am I living in a way that demonstrates my love and concern for others? Am I living the full life? Sometimes it feels really full. Sometimes it doesn't feel full at all. Is there something that I'm doing that is bad? What good do I need to start doing? See, these are questions that we also always wrestle with. Number two, we are incapable. This is David. He received direct revelation from God. He was a king of Israel. 
He had a heart like God's. But yet we are incapable, this is the second point, we are incapable within ourselves as individuals to bring ourselves clarity. For our our identities do not come from within ourselves. David was confused and tired and worn out and perplexed and confused. But he doesn't keep asking himself who he is. He doesn't re- keep reaffirming his own ideas of self. He, he turns to, to God and acknowledges that it is God who has made him and acknowledges that God that has given him identity, which is the third point. First and foremost, who we are is established by God. For he has created us. The text says that God has fashioned our guts. It's literally what it says. God has fashioned our guts, which is a way of saying that God knows what's going on on the inside of us. He knows our hearts. He knows our wills. He knows our passions. He knows what it is pure. He knows what, it is, what is in us that's evil. He knows our very inner things in, in ways that we do not know. It says that God has woven us together and knitted us in our mother's wombs. We were a person before we were born. In fact, the text says that God knew us when we were still in the earth. I don't, I don't exactly know how to interpret that, but here's what I think it means. That, that God saw all of humanity when he created man from the ground. It says that God has known us from the foundations of the world. So before humanity was even brought into being on this planet, God knew each and every one of us. See, personhood does not start when we are born. Personhood starts in God's design and fashioning of us in his mind. God's thoughts of us are vast and innumerable. So the, we were going through redemption group. So all, you guys, just so that you all know, all of the elders went through redemption group this past weekend. Three, three solid days. So we've gone through it. It's a very good experience for us as individuals and for us as a group. And we're very thankful to the, to the men that led us through it, Stacy and John and Joel. Very good process. But in part of my process, I'll reveal to you, they asked me a, a good question. What are you thankful for in your wife? And I immediately just spewed out a whole list of things. My, my thoughts on Anna are often... They're not innumerable. They're, they're, I would say they're vast in a human sort of way, but they're not. They, they are not innumerable. They're not like the sands of the seashore. We are limited in our capacity con- to conceive of ourselves and to conceive of others, but God's thoughts of us as individual creations of him are without number. God has thought and is thinking about you 
in ways that you can't comprehend because you are so valuable and treasured to him because he has created you. He has created you. God deeply knows our path of life. He knows our circumstances. He knows our thoughts. He knows our decisions. He knows our actions that affect our sense of who we are. He knows the decisions we've made, the circumstances we've got ourselves in. He knows how all of these things have shaped us. He knows how we think about ourselves. He knows the confusing dynamics. And he acknowledges, David acknowledges, that we can never be away from the presence of God. (laughs) And that can either be good or bad. If I try to run away from you, God, David says, I I can never escape. I could flee to the skies. I could flee to the depths of the ocean. I could go into complete darkness or into complete light. You are always there, which brings me to this sixth point. God is always there to help. David is crying out for God to give him clarity about who he is about what he's called to do. You see, at the, end of the, at the end of the psalm, God, search me and try me. Go into my inner thoughts and desires and show me a clear way for moving ahead. That's what he's asking for. God is always there. And he's, and he's with us and against those who would destroy us. And he's helping us to define our purpose. So we have to ask ourselves, what prevents us from going to God when we are in this state of flux? These states of confusion. These states of trying to figure out who are we? What value do we have in and of ourselves? What value do we have to others? How can we experience the good life? How can I command the respect and dignity of others? What prevents us? Well, there is humanism and naturalism. Our family was engaged with a, a friend of our family friend this, this past week. And he said that, that he was an agnostic. Doesn't know if you can know God and doesn't know if you can pursue him and doesn't know if you can have a, a relationship and know God in a personal way. And then he's kind of standoffish. Doesn't know, but has really adopted a, a scientific or a naturalistic perspective of the world. And he just told a story, a recent story, of, 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 of him driving. And he was driving through a really intense storm. And as he was driving, the thought came to him, I can pray and ask God for help. But then, he had this, but then he stopped and he was like, wait a minute, I don't believe in God. <laughs> Where did that come from? And it created this perplexity within him. I told him, I said, you know, that is what the Bible calls a consciousness of God. And everyone has it. And God is calling out for you. 
We have communities in our culture that tell us that God does not exist, God does not care, God does not desire a personal relationship with us, God does not desire to direct us into the life that we would consider good. And that is a lie. You did not come from an impersonal source, an accident, a product of evolution. You came from a God who has had vast and innumerable thoughts of you, who has loved you, who has created you, who, one of, the, one of the things the text says is that each and every single one of us were made with a skill that is awe-inspiring and distinguished. That is, there is a uniqueness and a power that God has put into you that nobody else shares. And you have a unique and particular role to play in, in this world and in your life before him. Sometimes it's our sin that gets in the way. I build furniture. I build furniture. Before I build furniture, I design it. I draw it out. It's in my mind. I put it on the paper. I figure out what kind of wood that I'm going to use, what kind of materials, hardware, how I'm going to finish it, what color it's going to be, what's the purpose of it. So there's beauty, there's function, there's all kinds of things that go into it. Then I build it. But then over the years, the furniture gets abused, it gets discolored, it gets scratched up, it breaks. Its purpose is gone because it's not functional. It doesn't look attractive anymore, and you'd rather just kind of maybe set it aside. But, you know, as the furniture designer and builder, I have thought much about that piece of furniture. I don't want to throw it out. Let's renew it. Let's renew it. Let's give it new life. Let's re-sand it. Put away the discoloring. Let's make it beautiful again. Let's fix it to where it's effective and not broken. Let's maybe make some alterations to it so it can improve its usefulness or its beauty. A creator, a designer, an artist that has spent innumerable thoughts on his creation does not want to throw us out because we're broken, abused, and become ineffective. It's not what creators do. It's not what artists do. It's not what builders do. Builders think of and see their original intentions, their original thoughts, and they say, you know what, I'm going to remake that. That's what God has done. That's what God wants to do. Your sin, you may... I was talking to somebody in the last couple of weeks. My sin is too great, he told me. I can't turn to God. My sin is too great. It's nonsense. A creator, a builder, a designer never wants to throw away what he has created. He wants to make it anew. He knows that there is sin that has bloodied us, that has broken us, that has bruised us, that has abused us, that we've inflicted upon ourselves and that others have inflicted upon us. And he wants to rebuild. And the scriptures teach that God, the creator, is Jesus Christ. And he has, he has loved us. 
He fashioned us. He has thought innumerable thoughts. Thoughts that are beyond our capacity. We will never think as many thoughts, period, as Jesus Christ has thought about you. And he sees us broken and ineffective and bruised and discolored. And he said, you know what, I'm going to make that, those people anew. But I've got, to first enter into the, I've, I've got to first enter into the suffering of humanity and suffered what they've done. I've got to be discolored. I've got to be broken. I've got to be bruised. I've got to be abused. I've got to die. So that I can take on what they have experienced and then in my resurrection from the dead demonstrate and overcome that which has broken and abused and destroyed and killed. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He wants us to come back to a true sense of who we are, a true sense in who he's made us to be. And he has entered into our suffering and rose from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. We're all broken furniture. We're all bruised, broken, discolored, ugly, ineffective. But he has not thrown us away, and he does not want to throw us away. He has made us and given us an identity in our very beings. First creation. And in the brokenness of sin, he entered into the world and took on our sin and died and rose from the dead he is the new beginning. He is the first of the new beginnings, and he wants to give us a new beginning. And in the state of our confusion and hardship and conflict that we have with, within ourselves and from the world around us, our first source of identity is Jesus Christ. And we must cry out to him and pursue him so that he can see if there be any grievous thoughts any anxious thoughts that would corrupt our sense of selves, that would corrupt our identities, that would corrupt what we know to be good and true, and then give us direction on the way forward. That's what he's offered to do, and he's there. We can never escape him. Let me pray.